Hi, I'm Trevor Dan. Welcome to episode two of Cambridge Minds, where we continue our search for the great thinkers in our city. This week we'll talk quarks and cosmology with David Tong, a theoretical physicist whose work is at the cutting edge of 21st century science. But first we'll meet a man who spends most of his time wondering about science in the 19th century. Professor Jim Secord is an American. He heads up Cambridge University's Department of History and Philosophy of Science. And he's also the director of the Darwin Correspondence Project, which is collecting and publishing all of the letters written by the great naturalist and geologist Charles Darwin. I went to see Jim in his office on Free School Lane. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. So Jim Secord, Professor of the History and Philosophy of Science. We'll come on to that in a minute. And we'll talk about Darwin and the time that you're spending reading his correspondence. But first of all, how did a young kid from Wisconsin evolve into a professor at the University of Cambridge? Well, one of the advantages I had growing up was that I had a liberal arts education in the United States. So I did two majors. I studied both geology and English literature. And so for me, it was always a question of putting these things together. I ended up then studying history of science at Princeton. And as part of that work in my graduate years, I, I had a fellowship to come to Britain to research and study my PhD. And during that time, I, I really decided that if I could, I wanted to stay in this country. I liked the size of the academic community. Um, there were a lot of things I liked about the way of life in Britain. I also thought the resources here, things like the University Library in Cambridge, were just fantastic. And having all that together was really important for me. So in many ways, that's kind of why I ended up here. It's, it's really the concentration of intellectual resources and just cultural resources that make it quite a special place. Because I guess at the time when we were talking about the brain drain and we were worried about how all our great academics were off to Stanford and Yale and Harvard, you were coming the other way. That must have caused some questions amongst your colleagues in the States. You know, why are you doing this, Jim? Oh, I think everyone understood at some level why I was coming over. But I think one thing to remember, too, we have to look back. This was during the Cold War. And there was some encouragement for American academics to come over. I got a Fulbright scholarship. I actually had a year of support from NATO. And so in some ways, I'm, I'm the long-term beneficiary of those Cold War attempts to improve the relationship between Britain and the United the States. The Marshall Plan of the Mind. Well, that's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think that there was, a, and I think there's always been that close intellectual. I don't really like to think about brains draining anywhere in some ways. I think that it's really trying to encourage intellectual discussion and, and conversation as much as possible. So I mentioned Darwin, and you are the editor of this incredible correspondence project. How many volumes has it reached now? Uh, it's on, we just published volume 22, and it's going to be 30 volumes in all. Um, and these are not thin volumes? No, they're 800 pages to 1,000 pages each, so they're very extensive, but it's all available for free online as well. We really work towards that. And so it's very accessible and very readable. I mean, these are letters, so they're Darwin writing to his friends, his family, his scientific colleagues, but in generally a very accessible sort of way. 
Um, I love working with the Darwin Correspondence Project because it's, for one thing, we have a great team of people. I, I really am, um, in some sense, just deal with a lot of the issues of general strategy and so forth. The, the people who really are editing the letters day to day, you know, they have a fantastic range of knowledge, everything from, you know, the details of zoological problems to, you know, really big questions in science and religion and so forth. And we, we're all dealing with those kind of questions in editing the letters and introducing them to the public. Just to go off at a small tangent, you mentioned that when you were a student, you did geology and English. Now, it's very hard to do that. I mean, in Britain, at the age of about 15, you get funneled down one course. You either go science or you go arts. Um, I wonder what you think of that uh, and the way we make that work in the UK. Yeah, well, I think like a lot of people, I think that the educational system is a bit of a problem here in regard to that. I think... In the end, I mean, people end up in good places generally, but I think it does encourage too early a specialization. And one of the things certainly that I've always tried to encourage our students to do is to get as broad a background in a range of subjects, particularly these days when having adaptable skills and being able, for example, if you're a scientist, being able to write, or if you're a person in the humanities, being able to think about science and technology. Those are really important questions, and I think by dividing them up, we're making a big mistake. So back to Darwin, any historian is by definition living in the past. What do we learn that is of value to us in the present and in the future by reading the correspondence of a man 100, 150 years ago? Well, I think in particular, there's a lot of issues where Darwin and his contemporaries are coming to terms with questions which still exercise us today, but they're coming to terms with them for the first time. I mean, one area I'm especially interested in is the whole idea that science has this huge public presence. And the Victorians were in some ways the first generation that really had to take that as a central thing of human life. What is the relationship of science and technology to the future? And of course, those are issues we deal with all the time now. And and looking at them in the period of Darwin's life and seeing how them changed really gives us a, almost a laboratory where we can think about those kind of questions and, and, and understand what's going on with them. He's known as that guy who took a cruise on the Beagle and came back and said, you know what, we're descended from the apes. Now, Almost none of that's true, but if, if that's the public image. Here's my first question. He started life, didn't he, as a geologist? I don't think we knew that. Mm. Yeah, Darwin, well, certainly on the, the voyage itself, his main interest was in geology, and he was really, he, his first publications were in geology. That's really where he became best known. Geology, both then and now in many ways, is a subject that helps you to really think big. And Darwin, from the very beginning of the voyage, is thinking Big. He's thinking about the whole earth, how to study it, where land uplift and um, subsidence, where all those things are happening. He wants to understand mountains, coral reefs, the whole lot. And, and, so, and how the, the earth is still alive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How it's a, how it's a, a growing, changing sort of thing. Um, and that's really central to him. And it's out of that that his evolutionary theorizing, which is, of course, another way of thinking big, really arises. Um, so, yeah, he comes he comes to it from the point of geology. I think the other thing to realize, of course, is that Darwin, like everybody, wasn't somebody who just had an inspirational idea and then spent the rest of his idea life working it out. I mean, it took him a long time. It wasn't until he got back from the Beagle voyage that he really began seriously to work through the problem of how you would come up with an evolutionary theory. And in fact, it was in London that he comes up with the theory of natural selection, not on the Galapagos or anywhere like that. So, And why did he get on that boat in the first place? Well, he was already very eager to 
go on a trip and see some places to do some geology, do botanizing and so forth. And he knew that there were places that he, he was, were, as it were, less developed. Well, yeah, he was, he was in fact going to go to Tenerife with some friends and he was preparing for that. But then, of course, he got this much larger opportunity. Um, they were looking for somebody who had some natural history experience but could take a few years off and go on this trip. And, and, I, and also just to be a companion for the captain, too, who was notoriously prone to suicide. I came from a family. So it was a bit of a difficult relationship, that one. But, but they, you know... He made it through the trip, and he really did a fantastic job on the trip. He's very assiduous about it. He really wanted to prove himself, both to um, his family and his father, but also to those around him. And so he, when he came back, he was really, in some sense, um, became almost immediately one of the leading figures on the London scientific scene. And was he, Jim, looking for something? Do you think he'd formed a view that he thought he could get evidence to support by going away? Or was he genuinely wondering what he was going to find? I think it's more wondering in the first instance, but I think he begins the whole trip thinking that he can make, especially in geology, he plans on writing a geology book. The, the moment he, the first place he lands, he thinks, I'm going to write a book on geology. And so, like I said, he really wants to think big through thinking about the earth as a whole. That's his big first idea. And it's only gradually that that comes into a, an issue about where do we come from, where do species come from, um, understanding that kind of problem. And that's something that develops during the voyage as the result of a whole range of things he sees. I mean, you have to remember, this isn't that long after Captain Cook's voyages. So he's in that next generation of voyages immediately after that. And you know, just the range of different kinds of peoples and customs he sees. I mean, you know, to have, have lived in Shrewsbury and Cambridge and then in Edinburgh and then suddenly, you know, whoosh, to have all of this pushed on him. I think must have, the impact of that must have just been extraordinary. And by the way, we're talking in Free School Lane in your office. He lived here, didn't he? Not in this building, I don't think, but he lived on Free School Lane? No, he never lived on Free School Lane. He lived at... Um, rooms in Christ College. He lived above Boots. If you go to Boots in Cambridge, um, if you you can see a little blue plaque there, that's a tiny one above, and it's 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 just right near where his his first rooms were when he first moved to Cambridge. And how long was he here? He was in Cambridge for about th- th- three years. Yeah, okay. altogether. Yeah, yeah. He took a took a degree here and and loved his years at Christ. He had a wonderful time actually. Um, and um, was really at that time already known as a kind of person who just, well, his hobby was collecting beetles. And there's a picture that actually shows him riding his hobby, which is a beetle. So he was very keen from the very beginning. Um, really, um, somebody who was quite passionate about studying nature from the, the start. So what sort of a guy emerges from these letters that you've immersed yourself in and your colleagues read assiduously day in, day out? Is he a guy you'd like to meet? Well... The obvious thing to say about Darwin is he comes across as quintessentially a, a nice guy. He's very accommodating. His letters are very... He, that's why he can get so many people to do things for him, you know, like send him bird skins from, you know, any corner of the world, stuff like that. He, he gets along very well with people. But it's also interesting to see, I mean, some of the, like the newest volume of the correspondence shows really quite a different side of Darwin. Um, he has a huge quarrel with another naturalist who's accused his son of um, advocating birth control and other you know, ideas which are really outside the pale for many Victorians. And um, it's interesting. So Darwin is absolutely furious about this, this, the idea that there's this lack of respect there. 
And there's other sides of Darwin, too. I mean, I've often thought of Darwin as, you know, somebody who knew what he was doing in science, but not necessarily by the end of his life in touch with the latest scientific developments. What you see in the, the new letters is really somebody who's right in touch with people at the big European labs, with people in London who are working in issues of, say, how poisons affect plants and so forth. So it's, it's really fascinating to see these, the kind of level of research that he's doing. So you, you get, a, in some sense, a different picture of Darwin. But, but basically, Darwin would have been a nice guy to know. There is a department here in the university that studies human evolution, isn't there? Yes, are, are you plugged into what they do? We, we certainly talk to them and have, you know, we've done various things with them in various points. But primarily we're related to um, the other subjects that deal with history, philosophy, the, the study of the sciences. We have very good relationships with anthropologists, sociologists and so forth. But across the board, really, it's a very interdisciplinary department. A lot of my friends are in sub subjects like geology or they work in the zoology department or in botany. Though a lot of those kind of subjects um, I'll talk about, uh, if I may, more uh, more about your specialisation in a minute. Just back to Darwin. We know that the country you come from is full of people who don't think any of it's true. Mm. I guess you occasionally go home and do, do people engage you in those kind of arguments? Well, to be honest, I tend not to meet the kind of people <laughs> that do that. The um, Republicans in the Seacord family. <laughs> well, not that kind of Republican anyway, I mean, to be honest. I, I, think it's, um, I think it's one of the great tragedies, actually. People don't really understand what evolution's about. They don't understand the sort of possibilities that are present. You know, even if you look at The Origin of Species, it's, it's a book that's quite open to different interpretations and different possibilities. So, you know, I think, I think the attempts to try and use it um, as a a way to get people to become atheists, that's a mistake. But to attack it, on the other hand, because, you know, it, it contradicts a particular reading of the Bible, again, I think that's a mistake. So I think, I think, I, it is, I think there's some real issues there. I mean, I, I have to say, going to the States, sometimes one, one way that I've, I've fundraised in the past, um, I, I used to show them a 10-pound note, and I said, wouldn't you like to live in a country that had Charles Darwin on the $10 bill? <laughs> Seriously, though, do you think... Christianity, in fact, any religion that implies that God created the world is compatible with Darwin's thinking? Well, I'm not a religious person myself, but I think that the idea that, for example, there are laws of nature that may have been instituted by some sort of divine being and that nature operates according to those laws, that's basically what Darwin believed. And I don't think there's anything particularly contradictory about that with what happens with natural selection. The idea that individual species, and particularly something like the human mind, were implanted as miraculous acts, I do think that contradicts. Um, but, but that's actually a particular view of religion and not one that certainly I, or many people that I would want to be associated with, would actually uh, believe in. So I think that there are many... There are many ways towards um, thinking about accommodating um, Darwinism and evolution, just as there are, I think, to, to say that science and religion at some how are continuously at war is, is just a mistake, actually. I wonder if you think, as I sometimes find myself thinking, we're of a certain age, let's put it that way, um, whether academic life for the last half a century was really about the liberal view and that in recent years has been a little bit of a pushback you know the idea that the more you know the more liberal in the very broadest sense you get mm. has been very much challenged in 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 recent decades is that true and how do you feel about that if it is 
I think that's true, not just in academic life, but in many areas of life. And to be honest, I find it disappointing. I mean, I do find, I, I think one of the things I appreciate about certainly the world I grew up in was that there was a very broad tolerance for a wide range of perspectives. You know, my father and I, for example, we disagreed on all sorts of things and we would have big debates, but it wasn't like it was root and branch every point, every bit along the way. And that's what I do find depressing sometimes, that it's so set in that way. And I think it is, particularly in the States, I think politically become a huge problem that. And it's, I think, a, potentially a problem here as well, although probably less so. And are you guys in the academic community part of the problem or part of the solution? You know, do you think you engage enough with the real world? Well, the people I know, and certainly the people in this department, engage a lot with the real world. I mean, we recently had to show that our work was having impact in the public sphere. We had no problem at all showing that. We had lots of cases, ones in fact we couldn't even use because we had too many. So our, I think part of the whole purpose of the history and philosophy of science as a subject has been to serve as a bridge between different disciplines, the humanities, the sciences, and so forth, but also between various publics who need to know about science, including ones within science, but also all sorts of different publics at large. But tell me more about that impact then. If I'm, you know, the, the man on the, uh, the Cherry Hinton omnibus, what does what you do mean to me? Well, there are a number of different ways that happens. But just for one thing, I mean, it, if you take knowing about what, say, Charles Darwin says, one of the things that I and my colleagues have been involved in is just making Darwin's writings much more available on the internet um, for free to anybody. And so they can look at what were manuscript letters that only a handful of people had looked at in the university library. Now they can just click on their mouse and get those letters and they can really read the material for themselves. And, you know, hundreds of thousands of people really do that all the time. And I think it's improved the tone and level of the debate in quite an important sort of way. Um, I, I think there are other sorts of ways. I mean, certainly... Um, Friends of mine and myself have been involved in collaborating with various television and film producers about um, working, you know, just making sure that, you know, the depiction of things is actually tries to show issues in a, in a, use, in a useful sort of way. I'm so if people are doing a drama about Darwin or, or one yeah. of the other people well, you I'm study, gonna... they might come to you. Yeah, one, one example is um, I helped a little bit on the, the film Mr. Turner that recently came out. And there was a film, a scene in there where Mary Somerville appeared. And, you know, I talked to the um, production team and the actor who was playing Mary Somerville. And, you know, they were, in fact, going originally to depict her um, saying things about science and religion that I knew that Mary Somerville never would have said. And, you know, I showed them. I gave them some stuff to read and talked to them about it. And, you know, in, in fact, in the film... It appears in a really, it doesn't, it's, I don't at some level care whether it's historically exactly what they would have said, but they get the kind of real cinematic truth about it. They get what the kind of essence of what was really at stake. And I think, you know, that kind of, you know, it's a small thing, but it can contribute towards making um, people get a different sort of impression about what's happening. Do you and your fellow academics care about what people outside of the university think of you? Oh, I think hugely. No, there's no question. I think, I think people underestimate the degree to which academics, by and large, really do want to reach people. I mean, I think one of the things that I, I've always been a very strong believer in is the possibility of something like a book, which is a very traditional form. But, you know, whether you read it on a Kindle or on the, uh, online or whether you buy the book, 
uh, it's something that can reach lots of different people. And the last book I published was a trade book from Oxford University Press, but, you know, at an inexpensive price. And, you know, it gets widely reviewed. It's, it's not read by millions of people, but it, you know, it, it gets out there and it then can shape other sorts of things as well. So, and you've made some podcasts. Well, I think one of the things that's been great about the internet for us is that we've been able to, uh, you can reach people really immediately. You give a lecture. It used to be you'd reach, you know, 200, 300 people maximum. You know, some podcasts, they get, you know, 20,000, 30,000 people. Some even that I've been on, which is amazing to me. I, I, I don't understand that. I think they're probably just downloading them and saving them on their machines. And they're not listening. Yeah, probably not. But, but no, it, seriously, I do think that, um, you know, that's been a great way forward for people. And similarly, with some of the other techniques. I mean, you know, some of the, um, I mean, one thing we tried to do was to show that there were certain things that people thought Charles Darwin had said that in fact he didn't say. And we found out where they were first said. In fact, one of them was by a, a sociologist in Louisiana. And um, we pretty much got that taken down. I mean, all over the place. I mean, you know, everywhere from the Natural History Museum in London to the Radio Times to the California Academy of Sciences, you know, so all of this has changed. And that's just a bit of detailed research, but it's quite important to get it so the real words are out there. So here we are in your office. I said when I arrived, Jim, that I thought it was a quintessential academics room. I mean, it's books floor to ceiling. It is, frankly, a bit of a mess. Um, there are folders that are broken, box files, there's old cardboard boxes over there. Um, I said to you, I thought you could shoot Educating Rita in here, and you said, but there's no bottle of scotch. I'll, I'll leave that one hanging. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis, what are you thinking about when you come in this room? What do you do here? Most of what I do in this room is teach. And teaching is very important for me. I mean, I love teaching the students. We get a lot of very brilliant students at Cambridge there. Um, but a lot of them, for example, haven't had the opportunity to learn how to write very much. They're just exploring their own ideas. A lot of them are learning how to think critically. And so for me, a lot of what I do is I have somebody sit pretty much where you're sitting right now, and I work through an essay or a discussion with them one-on-one -on -one and really work that through with them. And that can make a huge difference. I mean, you can actually... I mean, literally, almost sometimes it's the best thing, but when you almost save their life, I mean... You and is that inspiring for you as well? Oh, yeah, Do they no, sometimes no, think, teach you something? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it's there. It, that's why I love doing it so much. It's just, it's, it is very inspiring. And people get really good ideas. And often I get my best ideas when I'm teaching. The other thing I do a lot, I don't do it so much actually in this particular space, but I do a lot of... Um, reading and writing. Um, I do a lot of, particularly writing, I, I, I'm, writing is one of the things that really has attracted me to being an academic. Um, I love the idea of reaching a kind of double audience in some ways of a book or an article that will reach, on the one hand, an academic audience of quite varied, but then also um, a, a more general public audience. And I think being able to um, think about how to make the, what I want to say accessible in that way is always a challenge, but one that I really like taking on. So that's something that I often really work on and with. Are we cleverer now than we were 200 years ago? We certainly have the capacity to access more information, mm. but do you think as a society we're more creative? Well, I think the, the biggest change is simply that the world is such a much more democratic place. So vast numbers of people have access to information, knowledge, ways of thinking about anything that they were really denied in the past. And that is, I think, a fantastic thing. I suppose more specifically, what I do worry about now is that 
I, I think it's very good for people to be able to th think not just about specific bits of information, but about longer arguments, about connectedness of different things, really about understanding rather than information. And so I think in some ways what we need isn't so much an information technology, but a sort of understanding technology. And it's putting that, that together with all the new capabilities we have that's a real challenge for us right now. And I think getting the right form for that and getting a way of making it so public debate can be informed by those kind of issues is really crucial. There is a kind of reverse snobbery, I think, isn't there now, about education. You hear even people who probably should know better because they are very well educated mm -hmm. being quite dismissive of people because they've got a degree or they've studied or they're clever. It's almost the default position on radio and television to pretend that you didn't go to university or that you can't add up or that you don't understand Shakespeare. Um, do, do you detect that sort of trend? Well, for one thing, being in my office, living in Cambridge... Yeah, there's not a lot of it here, is there? <laughs> but to be honest, I, do, I think it is a problem. I mean, I think, and it's too bad. I think it's, if, I think it's one of the things that makes a society great, is its love of learning. And one of the things I think that was fantastic, certainly about the 19th century and the period I study, is a lot of people who really had to struggle to get information, you know, like to get a volume of Shakespeare was just like a miracle almost. And when they had it, it was just like this magic book. You know, we all seem to be able to get at that now. And I think sometimes we just don't appreciate what we've got. And I, I think that's true across all different sorts of people in society. I think sometimes it's even really true for academics, you know, really thinking about just how amazing it is that we've got these things available to us and that we really need to take them to ourselves as much as possible, make them part of our lives. And these students that you were talking about who are inspiring you come here, sit on these chairs, talk to you. How are they compared with the students of 25, 30 years ago? Uh, there I have to say, I'm always impressed. I think they really are wonderful students. I really do. Sometimes, I mean, I suppose you could say probably the general level of writing skills has gone down. Jim, they can't spell. That's what but, people will say to you. But on the other hand, they're... Um, you know, they have new ideas, ways of thinking about things. They're more open to different things. They're more adventurous in their writing than they might have been a while ago. So, you know, I think they're, and they're, they learn just as quickly. I mean, I think they're really, what I'm amazed about is you can get a student who starts at the beginning of the year and hardly can put a paper together, you know, really can't write a side of A4. And by the end of the year, they're producing a 12,000 word dissertation. Sometimes it gets published. Well, that's that's that not, must be because you're good. Well, no, no, this is, that's, that's the funny thing. I think I just, you, people in a university like this sometimes pride themselves on what they do to the student. But we, people in general, I think there's an awful lot of talent out there that isn't tapped like that, you know, and you bring it out in people. I think, for example, anybody can learn to write pretty well. Not everybody's going to be, you know, a Shakespeare. And not everybody's even going to be able to write really well. But a lot of people, almost everybody, I think, can write reasonably well. And I think it's a great thing to be able to do. So if I said to you, Jim, you filled me full of enthusiasm. You've motivated me to find out more about the history and philosophy of science, and I want to go and get a book that's going to get me going. Where would you send me? Ah, uh, <laughs> that's a really... I bet I, it's a book by you. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 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 that's a really fascinating question. You've caught me a bit off guard. Thank I, you. I'd say to probably what I'd still do is a book that by somebody I knew, actually, when I was a graduate student. It was Thomas Kuhn. Uh, the Structure of Scientific Revolutions. It's a very old book, 1962. 
But I still think that, you know, even after all the debates and everything like that, there's a lot of really interesting ideas in a book like that. Very accessible, very interesting the way it's put together and makes you really think about things. Um, the other thing I think I'd, I'd read is possibly Charles Darwin's autobiography. The Origin of Species is a wonderful book, but it's quite dense and a lot going on. It. The autobiography is really Darwin kind of unbuttoned, and you get a much better sense of him as a person, what he's thinking about. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go for Kuhn and Darwin. I'm going to spring a little bit of a surprise on you. I should have warned you about this, but at the end of all these interviews I'm doing with, with my Cambridge Minds, I'm asking you some questions about Cambridge and the way you interact with it. But just before we do that, I have actually been to your house, or to put it um, more uh, appropriately, your houses, because you you live like the Beatles in Help, don't you? You have two houses that are actually one because you've yeah, knocked them, right. together. Yeah, yeah, we put them together. I, I just wonder, do, do you go through one door and your wife goes through the other? Is that how it works? No, we, we put one door on the front, actually. <laughs> so it's, we did think about keeping them as separate houses, and that in many ways would have been a more sensible decision, but it makes a very nice kind of totality the way it is. And it's clearly a place you feel very at home. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, no, and, and one of the things I really like about it, and it's, we're lucky to have a, a big house like that, but it's, to be honest, living in a place where you can walk to work is really fantastic. It's one thing that worries me, actually, about house prices in this town, mm. is that it, it, that's one of the great things that keeps the university and the town kind of moving, and I think that's a real issue in the future for people. I'm not sure, if, for example, we would be able to do anything like what we've done now. So here is the Cambridge questionnaire that I'm going to inflict upon you. Uh, Jim, what's your favourite walk in Cambridge? We really like going to Wimpole. We go up on the big chalk downs, well, you know, up on the top there. And you can, you can put together a pretty good eight, nine mile walk if you go everywhere. That's quite hardcore, isn't it? And so we like doing that. That's a good, you know, that'll be a good day, you know, good afternoon, long afternoon walk. So there's some big boots in the hallway. Yeah, we really, Chateau it's a real interest my wife and I share is walking. We like to do that. And do you have a favourite restaurant or somewhere that you like to eat out? <laughs> Gosh. Um, I mean, I like the Chop House. Certainly one restaurant I like. That's, it depends. I, I, I like the sausages they have particularly. Excellent choice. And uh, the final one is, uh, what's your favourite shop? My favourite shop is Heifer's. It is a fantastic facility, isn't it? And don't yeah. you wonder when you go there, as I do... How long will there be bookshops? Well, I think one of the things that Heifers has done that's very good in the last year or two especially is they've really tried to make, make a shopping for books there more special than it was. They have more selected books. They have good discounts compared to what they had. It's, it really becomes quite an attractive place to shop for books. So I do like to buy books there when I can. Well, Professor Jim Seacord, thank you very much for having me in your uh, uh, splendid office and thank you for being our Cambridge Mind. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Professor Jim Secord. And if you want to look at some of Charles Darwin's letters online, go to darwinproject.ac.uk. You can read 7,500 of them there for free. And while we're on the subject of the history of science, a quick plug for the Whipple Museum, which is housed in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science on Free School Lane. It's a delightful collection of scientific instruments, globes, clocks, computers, all sorts of weird and wonderful devices. That's free too, and well worth an hour or so of your time. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan 
on Cambridge 105. Now let's come right back up to date and beyond. David Tong is thinking about the future. He's fascinated by how things work from the smallest particle to the biggest galaxy and he wants to discover new things. He's turned on by the Large Hadron Collider and the discovery of the Higgs boson. And if you've been wondering about what that is, you'll remember some people called it the God Particle, then stay with us as we hear from the man I would describe as Cambridge University's answer to Brian Cox. He's a professor in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics, and that might sound a bit dull, but dull isn't a word you'd ever use about David Tong. I went to his office to find out what's on his Cambridge mind. So, David Tong, I looked at your website. That's what we do in the modern world, isn't it? And you write on it, I work on quantum field theory, string theory, supersymmetry, solitons and cosmology. I don't think I know what any of those are. I might know what cosmology is. Um, What does a theoretical physicist do? What do you think about? So what what I really do is... um I think anything that's sexy but useless. That's kind of uh, how to characterise the work. So anything to do with, you know, Big Bang or black holes or quantum fields or particle physics or weird properties of, of quantum matter, um, that's sort of what I care about. So the, the big questions in the universe. Really. Let's talk about that word quantum. Mm. Now, apart from it being a word in a James Bond film, uh, if I make a quantum leap, I do something rather big, but... Quantum, the word in your world, means really tiny, doesn't it? It means things that are really, really small. So so the the laws of quantum physics are the laws that nature obeys when you look on the very smallest levels. So so from the level of an atom and then downwards to the nucleus um, and then downwards to the kind of scales that we're exploring at the Large Hadron Collider, this this machine in in Geneva at the moment. And the, the laws of quantum physics are... Um, I think it's fair to say slightly weird. They're, they're laws of probabilities. Um, strange things happen down, down at that level. Things, things that we don't really have the intuition to understand. I don't normally quote Donald Rumsfeld uh, when I meet a scientist, but you do seem to work in that world of known knowns and unknown unknowns and so on. I'm wondering how you ever know in your world, David, what's true, what's a fact? So that, that quote of Rumsfeld, I think, is a great quote. I, it really sums up um, the way science works. So, uh, you know, a lot of what we do is, is trying to understand the known unknowns. Um, so th- this, is, this is what's happening at the LHC right now, is um, uh, we have this machine. We know we don't understand nature at the most fundamental level. And we're smashing particles together at higher and higher energies to just see what's, what's there. We know we're going to discover something. We hope we're going to discover something. So I think that classifies as a known unknown. Um, more interesting, though, are the unknown unknown. They're the ones that sort of come out of nowhere and just, just hit you, broadside you uh, one day. So on the one hand, you're dealing with what you call particles, you know, stuff that's infinitesimally tiny. But on the other hand, you're dealing with cosmology. Now, that's as big as it gets. There's, there's, a, there's a dysfunction somewhere there. I'm not sure I know what it is. That, that, I think these are the two, well, from my perspective, the two most interesting questions. What, what's the universe like on the very smallest scales? And what's the universe like on the very largest scales? 
Um, now, you know, in the past, I've sort of somewhat facetiously said that we understand everything in between, from, from the size of an atom up to the size of the entire universe. You know, we've basically got things nailed. Since then, I've, I've looked into some of those things, and we, we, there's lots we don't understand quite clearly in, in the middle there. But I think at the fundamental level, that, that's, it, it's at those two extremes that we're really going to discover something new. So to give you an example, um, on the very largest scales uh, that we can see in the universe, the universe is expanding. We've known about this uh, for almost 100 years. It was discovered by a guy called Hubble that everything in the universe is, is expanding. But 15 years ago, we discovered an unknown unknown. We found that the universe is expanding, but the expansion is speeding up. So everything in the universe is moving apart from everything else but it's moving apart faster and faster as time goes on. This was also discovered by Hubble, but now Hubble, the spaceship's not Hubble, the man. And we have no idea whatsoever what's causing this. It turns out it's 70% of the energy in the universe is like an anti-gravity force field spread thinly throughout all of space that causes all the stars to move apart from all the other stars, or to say it more accurately, all the galaxies to move apart from all the other galaxies. So this is one of these unknown unknowns. It was something completely unexpected. As I said, it's 70% of the energy of the universe, and we really have no idea whatsoever what's, uh, what's, what's causing this. And is that replicated on the small scale as well, that there are things that you don't know yet, but you think you might find out? We, we, we hope so. So we hope that the LHC is going to just throw us a, a huge surprise. Have you been there, David? I, I've been to CERN many times. So there's a laboratory just outside of Geneva called CERN. The LHC is a ring underground there. It's 28 kilometres um, in circumference. Just say that again, by the way. How big is it? it it's, it's the most astonishing machine literally we have ever built. This is it's, bigger than a racetrack. It's isn't 28 it? kilometres in circumference at two points antipodal points on this circle there are two what are called detectors they're basically the size of a cathedral and they're just filled full of electronics and this is where the collisions happen so the, these people these are people are just heroes they, they they spin protons around this ring at very very close to the speed of light like 99.99999 percent the speed of light then they spin other protons the other way around the ring at the same speed and then somehow they manage to aim these things to get them to hit each other now, you know, imagine how good your aim has to be to get two protons to hit each other traveling at that speed. They collide them in, inside these huge detectors, these cathedrals full of electronics, and then they read off from this what's happening inside, inside protons. The goal is to discover new particles, to discover the new level of nature beyond which we've seen so far. And by a particle, you mean something smaller than an atom and smaller than an electron and, and just getting smaller and smaller? That, that's the ultimate goal. So the way we understand things at the moment is everything's made of molecules and molecules are made of atoms. And atoms have a nucleus with electrons spinning around them. And the nucleus is made of protons and neutrons. And inside each proton and neutron are three quarks. And that's where our current level of knowledge stops. So we know there are quarks and we know there are electrons. But so far we haven't seen anything smaller than those, anything inside those. And then there's a handful of other particles, um, things called neutrinos and you know, a few other bits and pieces. So we're left with about 12 particles, which are the fundamental building blocks of our universe as we currently understand them, interacting through a handful of forces. There are four forces. And this is our best theory. 
that we have to explain how the universe works. What is the so-called God particle? Oh, it's a terrible name. The, the, the God particle um, is the name given to the Higgs boson. So um, I, I should say we have this theory of, of these, these bunch of particles. We've had the theory for about 35 years. It's a spectacular theory. I, it's quite literally the pinnacle of science. It's a theory which gives the correct prediction for every single experiment we've ever done. It has the worst name imaginable. It's, it's got a rubbish name. It's called the Standard Model. I think we're too modest in science. You know, we, we, we have this amazing theory and we call it the Standard Model. It, it's such a boring name. And the last piece of that was a particle called the Higgs boson, um, which has been a part of this theory since it was first written down in the 1970s, but was only discovered two or three years ago. I think in 2012, we finally discovered this, and that was the last piece of this. And who is Higgs? Uh, Higgs is Peter Higgs. He wrote down his theory in 1967. It took him 50 years or so to see his his theory come to fruition. To and what, what's, a, right. what's a boson? This is not a boson, as in a boatswain. This is a boson. No, what is one of those? It's actually named after an Indian physicist called Bose. Um, so it, it turns out all particles we have in the world fall into two types. They're either fermions or they're bosons. Two types of particles. The, the things that we're made of, quarks and electrons, the stuff that's kind of hard, they're fermions. And the particles that carry forces, things like the particle of light, which is called a photon, are called bosons. And so this Higgs boson was a particle that somehow sits between the two. It's got some properties like light, but some properties like uh, electrons and, and, and quarks. Um, and as I said, it was, it was the last piece of the puzzle, the last thing we needed um, to complete the standard model to be sure that this theory we have is correct. What was exciting is that we hoped that when we found the last piece, the Higgs boson, this would be the portal to what comes next. So we have this wonderful theory, the standard model. We're desperate for it to be wrong. So, you know, f physics is kind of odd. You know, we, we're always wanting to kick our best theories and find where they break down and what the holes are. And we have very good reasons to believe that this ultimate theory we have at the moment, the standard model, is not the last word. That There will be something that lies beyond it. And we hope and expected that when we found the Higgs boson, that would give us the clue about what, what lies beyond. Now, when we found the Higgs boson, we didn't see anything else. We didn't see anything else lying beyond. Um, so that was a couple of years ago. In the last two years, this machine has been turned off. And what we're all hoping, keeping our fingers crossed for, is one of these unknown unknowns that finally we'll discover something new that lies beyond the standard model of particle physics, beyond what we know. OK, so your discipline is theoretical physics. So what you're dealing with here is theory. What's the point of, of this stuff, you know? If you don't know what it is you're looking for and you're trying to, in a sense, disprove stuff you think you know already... What's the value of this above and beyond, well, it's just interesting for its own sake? Oh, that, that's really easy to answer. I have no idea <laughs> whatsoever. You're um, far too in, modest. In, in, in fact, I think it's fair to say that throughout the history of science, no scientist has ever had any idea whatsoever about what their stuff is good for. So Heinrich Hertz discovered radio waves. He died thinking these things would never be useful. There could not be any practical application of radio waves. Rutherford said that um, uh, extracting energy from the atom was moonshine. 
so, so sometimes even when things are just staring you in the face, the physicists you know, are very bad at predicting what, what this is good for. There, there's other examples. Einstein, 100 years ago, developed uh, what's called the general theory of relativity. So it's this wonderful theory explaining how gravity is to do with the bending of space and time. And, you know, he had no idea that this would have practical applications. But these days, we've all got uh, phones in our pockets, which have GPS, and those GPS locators wouldn't work unless Einstein had developed relativity. So I, I don't know what's going to come out of the Higgs boson. I don't know what the applications are going to be. I don't know how it's going to make our lives better, but it will happen. And in a sense, I guess it's none of your business, because your business is to find this stuff out. And then it's down to inventors and entrepreneurs and other people to create industries out of that knowledge. That, that's partly it. I and mean, it's, not, it's not where my skill set lies. But I think a more honest way of saying it is it's, yeah, it's not why we do it. It's not what the game's about somehow. So, you know, it's, it's, it's brilliant. I can whip up my phone and I can find out where the nearest restaurant is, wherever I am on, on planet Earth. And I love that. But that's not why Einstein's theory of relativity is this towering achievement of human civilization. That's just not what it's about. There's been, uh, there's been debates about this for, for many years. So in the 1960s, there was, in America, a push to build a new particle accelerator, sort of the, the thing that was there before the LHC. Ultimately, it turned into a laboratory in Chicago called Fermilab. And at the time, the scientist in charge called uh, Robert Wilson had to go in front of the US Congress to argue why they should put money into this. And he was asked a very American question. He, he was asked, um, how will this machine help in the defense of our nation? The kind of things American wants, Americans want to know. And his answer was, was perfect. He said, you know, it won't help at all, but it will help make our nation worth defending. And that, I think, captures the spirit of, of what we're doing. It, it, it's not going to revolutionize the world in the next 10 years. You know, there are computer scientists doing this. There are molecular biologists doing this. It, it's really just a search for understanding what nature is about. And it's bound to have upshots. Uh, it's bound to have applications. You know, it, it always has throughout the history of science. But, you know, it might not be this decade. It might not be this century. But the goal is just the understanding. You mentioned David Einstein. And if I think about physics and uh, cosmology, the stuff you've been talking about, I think of people like Galileo and I think of Newton as well as Einstein. seems to me that what you guys are doing is disproving a lot of what they thought was true. But at the same time, you're recognising that without the journeys that they went on, you wouldn't be where you are. Is that fair? I think that's, that's very fair. Disproving might be slightly too strong a word. I'm, often it's refining what they did. So Newton wrote down these theories 350 years ago. Um, the theories, put bluntly, are, are wrong, but they work extraordinarily well. Um, they work well in, in all the cases that Newton cared about. And you only see that they're wrong if you look at very small distances, if you look at things going very fast, if you look at things that are, are very heavy. And then you need replacements. And sometimes those things, the theories that replace Newton, are, are fairly small modifications. And sometimes the things that replace Newton's theories are, are dramatic. So when you go to very small Quantum mechanics is what replaces uh, Newton's theories. And it, it's a huge change in our perception of, of the world. But, um, yeah, saying Newton was wrong is, is, is perhaps a bit, a bit harsh. 
but it, but in some sense he was. He was, uh, I guess, a bit of a pop star of his day. Theoretical physics has become cool, hasn't it, David? I mean, we think of Stephen Hawking, who I guess is somewhere in this building, or has been. Uh, we think of Brian Cox. Actually, I, these days I'm kind of thinking of you as well, having I mean, seen you on YouTube, wandering up and down, waving your hands. Do you feel like a kind of pop star of science? I, I definitely don't feel like a pop star, certainly not compared to, to people like Stephen Hawking, who's just down the corridor here. But but things have changed, you know. So, somehow it's cool to be nerdy and geeky in a way that it wasn't, even when I was young, you know. It used to be that when I met people at parties, they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I'm I'm a theoretical physicist. And, and you know, there was two, two answers. One, one was, oh, I was never very good at maths at school. And I'm not sure what to say to that. And the other one is, oh, you must be really clever. And I, I was never really sure what to say to that either. But But these days... You know, if you say you're a theoretical physicist, pe people get excited. People want to know about about what's happening, what's happening with the Higgs boson, what's happening with with cosmology. And I think people like Stephen Hawking and more recently Brian Cox um, have a lot. Uh, we have a lot to thank them for um, for really sort of bringing these ideas out and making them cool, making them sexy. Do you think that's helping with the sort of cohort of students you get every year? Are you getting? I wouldn't say increasingly, but do you get a lot of really not just geeky but bright people who want to be involved in society. Yeah, there, there's been a well-documented Brian Cox effect on the student population. <laughs> so Manchester, where he's based, has, has seen it most. I think their, their applications just went through the roof after, after he became famous. But we've seen it everywhere throughout the country. Physics is up, mathematics is up, and you know it's crucial. The, 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 this is what we need. We need a bright influx of bright young students to keep, keep the subject ticking over. And do you like doing that? I mean, some of the Cambridge Minds that I've spoken to in this series have emphasised that the teaching part is really exciting. And I, I've been surprised by this because I thought that what would really turn them on would be their research and that having to sit with some undergraduates would, in a sense, be a chore that they had to do. How is it for you? Well, it's a fantastic part of the job. So there's two parts of the teaching. There's the lecturing, um, which I think I enjoy most, actually. So, so the lecturing is, you have classes of anywhere between 100 and 250 people. That um, is like doing a gig. I mean, back to the pop star thing, you know, the, and I've seen you on YouTube, that is a performance you're giving there. The, the, the 250, I, I just taught last year, first year, undergraduate Newtonian mechanics. And, and you're right, it's, uh, it's a performance. You, you stand up and it's not intimate in the slightest. And yeah, it's, it's like being on stage. But the great thing about it is, you know, you actually get to learn a subject for the first time. And you realise that for years you've been bluffing. For years you didn't really understand <laughs> Newtonian physics or string theory or electromagnetism or whatever it is. And finally you get to, you know, sit down and understand it so that if one of those very smart kids asks a question, you, you hopefully know the answer. And then the other side of teaching is the supervisions, where you sit down just, just with two students. And it's very different. It's very intimate. And often it goes off in directions you, you didn't expect at all. It's more often than not, they ask you a question, or at least they ask me a question that, that you know, I don't know the answer to, and, it, and it's fantastic. You know, sometimes we can figure it out there and then, sometimes I have to go away and think about it. But it, it, it's inspiring. So we're sitting here in your office in the Centre for Mathematical uh, Sciences, and I'm delighted to see not just one, but two whole-fashioned blackboards. I mean, to be fair, they're slightly green, aren't they? But they are chalkboards. There's no... 
whiteboard with felt-tip pen nonsense going on here. This this could be the 1940s. This could be you explaining flight or something. Nothing's changed at all. And it's it's so much better to have these these old-fashioned blackboards. I... So what does all that mean? Talk talk me through that. You know what you've actually written on that blackboard over there. There's lots of lots of Greek letters. Oh blimey! Um, <laughs> these, There's some deltas and some there thetas, phi's and psi's and yeah. mu's, and um, these are the equations that describe vortices. So vortices, you know, if, if you pull the plug from your bath and you, you, you stare at it, you'll, you'll see this little swirl of water going down. Which goes um, a different way in the northern hemisphere than it does in the south. Well, no, not really, it's but not it, not right. it doesn't work. Oh, one but thing it, I thought I might know. <laughs> but it, it's, it, theoretically, it's supposed to. Pra <laughs> practically, it just doesn't. But the, these, these objects called vortices appear all over physics. They're, they're really wonderful. They appear in your bathtub. They appear in superconductors, which are materials that conduct electricity without any resistance. Remarkably, they even appear inside the proton. You can think of them as the things that hold quarks together inside the proton, these little, little strings. So these are the equations that describe vortices. And we've been trying to understand a little bit about how these vortices interact through the laws of quantum mechanics. So that, that's what's well, going just on. Just read there. one of those out to me. The most beautiful one says B equals QQ dagger minus mu. Why is that beautiful? Um, it's, it's got this elegance to it that, that somehow the, the very best theories of physics have. It, it's, hard, it's hard to explain. You know, it, it's got some mathematical beauty, but somehow some conceptual depth, so that when you understand what all the squiggly hieroglyphics mean, you know, it's got something quite beautiful inside it. You love that, don't you, in a way that a musician might love a sequence of notes or a, a literature expert might like a line of poetry. Oh, it's wonderful, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like these equations uh, the best because I came up with some of these. So the, the, these are these are a bit special to me, but but no, it's 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 gorgeous. Okay, well, do tell me what's on the other board, which looks like a Sudoku. Oh, the the other board um, is actually something I've been trying to learn. So ah. it's uh, it's it's a wonderful topic that has come up in the theory of condensed matter physics. So condensed matter physics is understanding the way materials work, and people have come up in the last five years with a theory of something called topological insulators. This probably is going to change the world, actually, in, in the short term, not just the long term, because these are really materials that you can, you can do stuff with. So for 100 years, people have thought insulators are boring. Right? In insulators are things that don't conduct electricity. And what they realized about five years ago is you can be boring in lots of different ways. And so all of these boring materials called insulators can be classified and that, that's what you're looking at on the board there is a table which classifies ways in which you can be boring i'm sure it's more than that but i'm hooked okay so one of the other things i wanted to know about from you is what life is like in cambridge there's a lot of academics here who've been virtually nowhere else you know they might have possibly been to Oxford for five minutes and not found it to their taste. You, on the other hand, you're a comparative latecomer. You worked in lots of universities in the UK, and, uh, but also outside. What's special about Cambridge? For me, I think the most important thing is just, just the quality of academics here in the department. It's a very, well, my colleagues are brilliant, but more than that, it's quite a nurturing place. I was quite surprised by this. 
And I think more so than, than American universities, where things tend to be quite cutthroat. In Cambridge, at least in, in the theoretical physics department here, there's kind of a culture of trying to encourage people to work on whatever the hell they want to work on. And it, it doesn't matter if it's cool. It doesn't matter if you know it's going to get you lots of citations, which is kind of the currency in science. It's just, you know, you've got to this stage, they've put your tr their trust in you that, that, you know, you're the right person to have this job. And so it's just do whatever you think is the most interesting thing to do. And that's rare. That, that's unheard of, I think, in American universities, where you're obliged to work on the thing that's going to bring in grants and the thing that's, you know, the thing that everybody else is working on, basically, because that's what's cool. So here you're just encouraged to do things a little differently from, from elsewhere. I, th I think that's the best thing about this this university and you've been here 10 years i'm going to pose the cambridge questionnaire mm -hmm. uh, at you now uh, david um what is your let's start with what's your favorite walk in cambridge oh, i have this walk i do every day which has got to be my favorite which is is down mill road through the center of town through st john's college across the Bridge of Sighs, which is stunningly beautiful, and then across John's playing fields to the department. That's not bad. Even if it's raining and windy, that'll do. Actually, the bit across St John's playing fields is a bit miserable <laughs> if it's <laughs> rainy and windy. But, but no, it's, it, it's such a beautiful town. I know it's, it's a privilege to live here. And where would you go out for dinner tonight in Cambridge if you could go anywhere? What's your favourite restaurant? Oh, you know, the, the, the standard place is uh, it's the punter because it's close to department. But it has great food and, and great beer. And do you have a favourite shop? Do I have a favourite shop? I, I'm, grateful, I'm grateful for Heifers and Waterstones just because they haven't closed yet. I'm sure the clock's ticking. I know Amazon has got the clock ticking on every bookshop. But, but while they're still open, I'm enjoying them. And I have one final question for you, which is, does anyone ever say to you, it's all gone David Tong? <laughs> uh, no relation. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, David, thank you so much for being our Cambridge mind. It's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, thanks, Trevor. Professor David Tong and Professor Jim Secord were our Cambridge minds in this programme, which was a TDC production for Cambridge 105. We'll have two more local thinkers for you to meet in four weeks' time. Thanks for listening.